0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, Dr. Muriel McClendon hosts History vs. Opera, in which Dr. Tiffany Kuo and Dr. Kara Cooney analyze Verdi's depiction of Egypt in Aida and historical records of Egypt's Old Kingdom. A video containing the images referenced in this podcast is available via link in the description. This podcast was made as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. LA Opera's Aida is playing from May 21st to June 12th at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Get your tickets now at laopera.org.
1: I'm very excited to be here. Some of us were just talking about that we know nothing about Egypt and that this is where we're really going to deepen our knowledge and also deepen our knowledge of, I think you know, one of the most well-known operas from the Western world, Verdi's Aida. So I think first I'm going to ask some questions of Dr. Cooney, and then we're going to turn it over to, to Dr. Quote. And I think the goal here is really to deepen our historical understanding and our musical understanding of this opera, setting them both in their historical and musical context. And so I'm going to jump right into it, and I'm going to turn to Kara first. And I think the first thing I want to ask you is, How recognizable is Verity's old kingdom to you as a scholar of of ancient Egypt?
2: Um, Well, I'm sorry to say not very recognizable at all. There's all kinds of issues with saying that, that Aida is set in the old kingdom. The names aren't right. There's mention of Amun. Amun is an element to many of the names and Amun doesn't come to prominence until dynasty 12, which is the middle kingdom and really comes to prominence in dynasty 18, which would be the new kingdom. There's also mention of the city of Thebes also doesn't come to prominence until 11th dynasty at the earliest. So those who say this is an old kingdom story, I would disagree and say that it's a middle to new kingdom story. Then it can still be very interesting. There's also elements of names that seem kind of Ramses like, which make it 19th and 20th dynasty. And there's all kinds of little tells that make me realize they're trying to pull from Egypt. And I don't know where the old kingdom cipher came from, except that the old kingdom is when the great pyramids on the Giza plateau were built. And so maybe that's what people were using and still use as an operatic background. And so maybe that's why they want it to be set in the old kingdom.
1: So this is just kind of, you think, a, a mishmash of far away Egypt
2: which is something, Muriel, that we do with Egypt. We homogenize it. We take these 3,000 years and we just kind of mash them together and create a, an orientalizing sort of Egypt that, that we think existed. And this is what Verdi was doing, from in my opinion. And it's surprising because Auguste Mariette, a well-known Egyptologist of the late 19th century, was also, I think, involved in the set design and costuming. But I suppose he wasn't involved in names and libretto and any sort of construction of the plot. And there we see some, some things that don't quite work. But it fits a 19th century sensibility and understanding of how they want the Egyptians to be.
1: It's interesting you mentioned, I was recently listening to a podcast about Cleopatra and the host of the podcast was saying the same thing, that we just sort of mash up everything about her and place her with people that she could not possibly have have known. And so I guess maybe this is just our popular approach to Egypt is to just take things that we've heard someplace and throw them all together.
2: Yeah, it is. And it's an orientalizing approach. It's a Western approach. It's an appropriation of what we think Egypt should be for us. And and that to me is the way I look at this opera. It's a construction of an Egypt that Europe can really hold on to and claim as their own, claim as their origin story. And that's where it gets the most interesting from my perspective.
1: What do you think about the competition between Ethiopia and Egypt that Verdi has constructed here?
2: Yeah, the word Ethiopia is problematic from the get-go, but it's something you see in Herodotus and other places, that the burnt people, and this is the, the etymology of that name, They're they're people of the South. And the first thing that becomes apparent is that, yes, there was competition between Nubia or Kerma or Kush and Egypt throughout 3000 years of history. But I, I would say that you don't get, quote unquote, Ethiopians or people of Kerma or Kush becoming very powerful and able to fight back against Egypt really until later, probably 20th dynasty, around a thousand BCE, you start to see the rise again of these people. It's much later than this, this opera is supposedly staged. The thing that's most interesting about this Othello-like um, <laughs> Egypt versus the Ethiopians, right, is that Egypt is set up, in Verdi's mind, in Auguste Mariette's mind, in the Europeans' mind, as white and is claimed as white whereas the ethiopian story makes a very hard line within an african place that did not have this hard line and if you go to north africa and you visit and you move from egypt down you will see the gradients of skin color and the gradients of an understanding of constructed race different as, as slowly changing as you move south it's not like there's this this harsh line between what is white and what is black. But this is something based on American chattel slavery, South American chattel slavery, that's very much in the colonizer, the European colonizer's mind. So there's this binary setup between white and black, which which fits very well for the Egyptians being the white people and the Ethiopians being the black people. And yes, we have this poor princess who's been abducted and is abducted by the Egyptians. But it still reifies and reconstructs this idea that white culture can claim Egypt and that black culture is something to be kidnapped, to be controlled, and um, to be othered.
1: So was there an Ethiopia at the time that Verity is setting his his opera? Something that we we recognize as Ethiopia today.
2: Um, There was, but it wasn't a place that... there, There was an Ethiopia and there was a nation state. Of Ethiopia, but we're really looking towards a Greek and ancient Greek understanding of what Ethiopia was—black-skinned people and differentiated from Egyptian-skinned people. And let me let me just tell you—and I said Egyptian skin, which is rather ridiculous—but it is something that Egyptians today still try to hold on to: that Egypt is white and not black; that Egypt is somehow a part of Africa and yet part, not part of what is to the south, Ethiopia is a greek word and it is a greek word imposed on those parts of africa that some might call sub saharan even the phrase sub saharan is becoming seen as the racist trope that it is but it is a way of talking about the parts of africa where black people exist but it's from a greek perspective so that's the way you you've got to see it yes there is a nation state that takes on this name which is interesting in and of itself
1: oh that is interesting thank you and then finally i want to ask you what do you have to say about Verdi's depiction of chattel slavery because of course that plays a central role in this piece. Yeah, you know,
2: they're put on stage in chains like slaves. So you you actually have in the librettos that I've read and I don't know how this is being staged in the LA opera but you you have Ethiopian captives of war displayed in chains by the Egyptians, and you see that rubric of power represented to an audience, a a righteous power in a sense. And the thing that I find so interesting is that in Verdi's world, in a European cultural world, the main trope of Egyptians, before a rediscovery of Egypt and all of these great treasures and before even the discovery of Tutankhamen's tomb, of course, but we're discovering temples and all kinds of miraculous things in Egypt as colonialism rises in the late 19th century. Before those colonial moments, Egypt was known through the biblical exodus story as kidnappers and enslavers. And they're the bad guys who are taking the Hebrews into their clutches and making them build cities with bricks without straw in them and other horrific practices. And this is how the Egyptians are are seen as the enslavers. This libretto and opera, in my opinion, Tries to change this. It tries to make the Egyptians, yes, the enslavers, but the enslavers in a complicated, nuanced, self-deprecating in some ways. You can fall in love with the dark-skinned girl, for instance, way. And it's a way of working with those with those issues, but also making the Egyptians into the colonizers. And then the Europeans can then identify. With the Egyptians and say, oh yes, we are invading these parts of the world, but we are righteous in doing so. We are the ones who have the the language and the culture and the religion, and we are the the elites in that in the way of the mind. And these people are somebody who can be brought to us in chains, and and should be brought to us in chains. So it's a very complicated story, in my opinion, about how Europeans at the time were dealing with the end of chattel slavery in the United States, but the continuance of an understanding of white versus black binary discourse in the world, and who deserved to be a part of of cultural elite, and who did not, and and all of the nuances that come into play. And the fact that Verity uses the notion of falling in love as the thing that makes you lose yourself and lose your common sense, that only that can break down the boundaries between, that have been established between the white and the black. And, and that's where, where everything starts to crumble. I find that very, very interesting.
1: In watching Aida yourself, how, I mean, how, how do you approach this? How do you think about it? What do you think would be useful for all of us to keep in the back of our minds as we are watching this?
2: This is a European understanding of Egypt. It is a European claim of Egypt. It is a construction. It is a fallacy. But but it is so important for us. And as an Egyptologist, every time that I um, and I have presided as a co-curator over the reboot of Tutankhamun in 2005 at the LA County Museum of Art, every time we set up one of those blockbuster exhibitions, we are dealing with this legacy, and it is weighty indeed. It is something that follows us and haunts us, and there's there's no way to get around our cultural memory of what Egypt is in our in our mind's eye and it feeds into colonialism it feeds into how we approach africa how we've constructed ideas of race eugenics all all kinds of things are are deeply embedded in this play so it's less about egypt and more about quote unquote western civilization and its reconstruction thereof that doesn't mean it's without value um it can help us to understand why we prize um and i've just written a book about this called the good kings about our uncritical evaluation of Egyptian authoritarianism as something good. That's why I named the book The Good Kings and why we are so attracted to that fatherly authoritarianism that we see as taking care of us and why we're attracted to all the gold and the wealth and the riches. These are things that we can't seem to get enough of in American culture and, and in European culture. Verdi was a part of this, and this is still ongoing. And as we enter our perhaps um, late-stage patriarchal world to... Now look at Aida through that lens. I think it, it makes it even more interesting. What is power? What is masculine power? How does the female become a part of this? What does race have to do with it? Um, all, all of these things are swirling around in my mind.
1: So we should really think of this as telling us more about Verdi's Europe than actually about f- faraway Egypt. So that's that, that's really what we're seeing here.
2: Yeah, it's a glorification of of these beautiful things coming out of the ground. When Verdi was writing this opera, you had Auguste Mariette, the Egyptologist, discovering things that cannot be imagined. The the Temple of Seti I at Abydos, all of these temples were being cleared and you could see statuary and beautifully produced statuary at that, miracles in stone that we still don't know how the Egyptians wrought solid uh, granite obelisks of one piece, colossal statues that are multi-stories high. These are things that we we think hold secrets for us and we want to know more about. So it's as much about that about our searching for an a sustainable, for 3,000 years, an unquestioned political power. I think that's what this play is so very much about and then the people that get used up along the way are um, collateral damage to the beauty that is egypt that must be preserved at all costs
1: great thank you so much well i think with that so we've gotten you've given us some good historical context now and so i think we might add some musical context to this historical one and so i'm going to turn to tiffany now and i'm going to ask what do we know about the sounds of ancient egypt because of course those this this is an opera And what do we know today versus what Verdi and his collaborators knew in the 19th century when uh, this piece was written?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's so fascinating to Kara. Thank you so much for that. Like all clarifying all the facts. Right. And also sort of um, explaining to the audience right now that, you know, it is much more about Verdi's Egypt than it is about actual ancient Egypt and I want to share with you sort of some um, sounds that I discovered and we can think about it you know in terms of sort of like what was then and what is now and so I myself am also a huge opera patron and I'm always so enthralled and so overwhelmed by the spectacles of Aida on stage that I don't often question you know so like what is authentic which we know probably is not because we don't know what anything sounded like in the ancient world whether it be Old, Middle, or New Kingdom, right? What I mean was Verdi like Egyptian music influence, perhaps, perhaps not, or is it just you know as Kara had said, simply Verdi's imagined world of ancient Egypt? And so I thought we begin by looking at performers, musicians playing instruments that were excavated from the tombs. So here we see four women. And notice that they're all women, right? And one child in the middle. And all four women are playing a music instrument. And so from the left, we have a harp I want you to notice that the the lady is standing and playing this harp. Second from the left, we have a plucked instrument, um, possibly two strings. It's kind of unclear, you can't see the strings itself, but you can see that there are two tassels at the end of, of the instrument, right? And the two tassels perhaps are connected to two pegs, right? And today we call this instrument a lute. And then next, from a third from the left, we have a lady playing a wind instrument. She's blowing it out of her mouth and it appears to be sort of like a pipe because it's two sticks coming out of her mouth. But the, the sticks are so skinny that it's probably not exactly an exact portrayal of these pipes, right? Because that would be way too thin and you can't see the holes. But she looks like she's probably fingering the holes. Last on the right, we see a musician playing a lyre. And the lyre has sort of been a symbol of music for um, various, um, centuries throughout time and it's often um, used on stage as a prop right even though it doesn't actually play. So I'm going to show you two more of these images just to sort of like get you accustomed to sort of you know what were some of the images that um, were known already in the 19th century and some of these were known in 19th and some were um, excavated in the 20th century. So here we have Another harp player on the left. And this one's a little different, right? She's actually kneeling, she's sort of half kneeling. And you can see that harp is sort of leaning against her shoulder. So this is called a shoulder harp. And then on the right, we have another lady, um, once again, a woman playing also a a lute, but this time you see three tassels. So perhaps, you know, there's three strings to it. We can't really tell. And of course, this is over um, some hieroglyphics that would explain the circumstances of why these uh, musicians are performing. And then last, I want to show you this one. And it's now a man, and he's also kneeling and playing um, also a harp, but now before God. So I've obtained all these images, which you can find on the internet, and I found it fascinating. And it kind of provides us with this basic understanding of sort of like who's playing maybe in what context and what's um so to add on top of the images we just have like visual evidence right now archaeologists have also excavated instruments and this is an example of one of the harps that we had seen earlier so this is an actual harp that was excavated from the new kingdom from 1390 till 1295 bc this specific one is a shoulder harp, and so remember that's the second image of the lady who was half kneeling, right? with the harp against her shoulder. This harp, Tiffany, 12. Tiffany, uh-huh. can I yes. jump
2: in really fast and let sure. you know that yeah. the face on the face on that harp and the wood—it seems to be made of ebony wood. I'm I'm not sure, if that's an that's an African hardwood. But it's uh-huh. certainly representing a Nubian bound prisoner. And so this gives the Egyptian perspective on the quote-unquote Ethiopian, but the the darker-skinned people of the South and how they did try to control them through history. And it is a racist image and it's, you know, the Egyptians wouldn't have considered it that, but they would have considered it an, an image of righteous domination over these Southern people.
3: Yes. And in fact, by right, the, the new being captive, she's or he is bound right by the strings of the harp. And so it's like very, very clear. And I'm always like so fascinated by how well kept these instruments are. And I mean, I actually don't even know those are like original strings, but they look like they could be. And another instrument is the sistrum. And it's, it's a rattle. And it's also an ancient Egyptian percussion instrument. It was thought to be shaken during religious ceremonies um, when uh, in the presence of a deity, so you see the actual cistern on the left and then depictions of it being performed by musicians in the middle and then in the relief also on the right. And this also dates from the New Kingdom, but even later, um, circa 1186 to 600 BC. And it's very likely that the cistern is made out of um, what well, we do know that's made out of cuprous metal, which is a um, a a combination of alloys and copper um, and bronze. And it's about like 14 inches. So like a little taller than your regular piece of paper. Um, The width is about not quite four inches and the depth of it is about two to three inches. Um, And I thought this was something also incredibly sort of like beautiful to look at. Now, so why am I showing you all this? It's to really to conjure up some sounds in your head so you can sort of like imagine maybe what ancient Egypt sounds like because we really don't know, right? Beardy really didn't employ any of these instruments that I showed you, right? It is not an opera intended to depict authentic ancient Egyptian sounds, right? Rather, it's about this grandeur of ancient Egypt, which remains a fascination even today, as Kara has you know, noted. And it's really a, just like a extravagant backdrop for what was 19th century Italian opera, and, and also the grand operas, the French grand opera of the late 19th century, proportions right it's epic so imagine that you know in the late 19th century world you know this would be the biggest set that he could possibly potentially you know bring to light right egypt right the the, the pyramids sometimes i think you know if maybe if verdi were alive today it'd probably be like the galaxy right that would be the largest and so what you see here are the set drawings for the original and you can see sort of like this epic proportion that is trying he's trying to capture now if we think in terms of sort of this grandiose, right? Verdi wants to create a grandiose opera, right? That's competing with the French grand style, okay? Those instruments that I showed you are very soft sounding, right? The lute, the harp, the lyre, maybe like a collection of sistrums, you know, but the most of like loudest, and most grandiose instrument we even still today and the most of a triumphant instrument is really the trumpet, right? not the other instruments that i showed you and trumpets has always been associated with pageantry and with military prowess and perhaps that is why act two scene two one of the most famous um, scenes maida and the most performed one you know taken also out of context and also in sort of graduations these days is that triumphal march right with that beautiful brass fanfare where the egyptians have won the war and there's a triumphal procession celebrating rodimus's victory. So here you have the sketches. These are costume sketches, and they are for the onstage trumpet player, right? Now they're meant to be on stage to depict this triumphal scene. And you can see these trumpets here that they've drawn are without the valves and without the pistons, okay, which is like Actually, it's meant to be accurate. And and I do have to give um, them credit for this because valves and pistons were invented in the 19th century, right? Post-industrial revolution, post steam engine discovery. And so the idea of depicting them with natural trumpets is, you know, it could be real, right? But now if you think about it, a natural trumpet, just like a natural horn, only sounds so many notes. So a natural sound trumpet sounds the diatonic less than fewer than a diatonic scale. It would sound the basic notes of the overtone scale or the natural harmonic series. So you would have the bass note, the fifth, and then the octave. So if you solfege, you would be like, do, so, do, and that would be one octave. And if you could possibly produce the second octave, I'll start from the bottom again. It would be do, so, do, mi, so, and then possibly a te and then a do. So you would have only seven notes. Okay. Now, seven notes is not enough for a 19th century opera. 19th century opera is meant to be chromatic. It's meant to be dense, right? Very lush new instruments are being introduced on stage, off stage, all the time. And so what Verdi <laughs> did was to create new instruments, but not really. So here, what you see are these modified trumpets, right? So you see the pistons and the valves, just like a regular trumpets with the three, but they're just elongated to almost a meter long. So it's like this combination of the old and the new merged together. And in fact, for that particular Triumphal March, you don't even need the three valves, you only need one. And so it's this interesting mismatch, right? We were talking about mismatch earlier of sort of like the old and the new. So it looks kind of old, but is in fact using new technology to play. There are actually people still making this instrument for the production just of Verdi's Aida and also a couple other operas that use sort of these natural looking, but in fact 19th century technology um, trumpets on stage. And one of these men, um, and he talks about it, his name is Herb. Poole. He's from Canada. He's a trombone player, but he makes these trumpets.
0: I'm Herb Poole. I'm the bass
2: trombonist in the Canadian Opera Orchestra, and I'm also an instrument builder. Verdi wrote for a set of six trumpets, three in A-flat and three in B-natural. It took me about uh, six weeks to build the set, so that averaged about a week an instrument. Of course, it requires no extra strength to play this instrument uh, in terms of actually blowing and playing the instrument. But uh, the you might see that the instrument is fitted with rings, and that would be to uh, attach a banner, which is often uh, asked for in the, in the performance of these in- instruments. And though, uh, so you can see that holding an instrument up like that with a banner on that that might require a little extra.
3: So on stage, this is what it would look like, right? So you have two sets of of these elongated trumpets, one set in B flat and one in A. So this famous tune is more notes than what you could potentially play on a natural trumpet. so remember the natural trumpet only has do so do and then possibly the mi so te do now if you look at the the melody of this famous march it's so do and then you have re it's already a new note so it's fine re mi but that's only that mi is only possible in the second octave right and then mi fa which is like a semitone that's Definitely not possible on a natural trumpet. Mi, fa, do, mi, re, do. And then the rest is sort of repeating the re, mi, mi, re, do. Re, mi, mi, re, mi, mi do, re, re. So it's, once again, it's like this mismatch of like the old and the new. It's simpler. This is a diatonic scale, but it's not simple enough to play on a natural trumpet. Very depicted the triumphal scene with these modified trumpets, right? But what he didn't know, because he died in 1901, is that um, in 1907, they actually excavated real trumpets um, from ancient Egypt. And so here what you see are sort of two fragments of um, from the tombs of um, trumpet players, right? You have a trumpet player on the right in this relief and you see a trumpet which is, uh, barely see the trumpeter. Um, and on the left here, what you see is um, this trumpet is part of a procession with dancers. So you see some dancers on the left here. And in a way... Like Even though Verdi didn't see this particular evidence, he depicted it very close to what we see here in this image. Right? And both of these evidence comes from also the new kingdom, not the old kingdom of the Amarna period, which is circa 1353 to 1336 BC. And they've both been identified during uh, to be from the reign of Akhnacht and they're both currently kept at the Met Museum. And so this tomb that was discovered in 1907 of akhnaten I mean, I find it fascinating that it was, you know, after the fact that Verdi knew about it. On top of this, in 1922, Trumpets were actually uncovered in the burial chamber of the pharaoh of King Tuck. And during the excavation, um, two trumpets were uncovered. So one was in bronze and another one is in silver. And so they found it together with this sort of wooden sort of stuffing inside the actual trumpet. This is a natural trumpet. There are no valves. There are no there's no pistons. And the other one, um, which is bronze, is actually it, it was actually shattered when they decided to play it. The discoveries of these trumpets were so momentous in the 1920s that they decided to play it before a live audience of about 150 million listeners through the international BBC broadcast. And that was aired April 16th, 1939. And there is actually a recording of this entire broadcast. And I really want to share this with you because it's it's an absolutely amazing sort of just hearing, right? Because we can now actually hear what um, it sounds like. And so I just want to recall uh, one last time what natural trumpets do, right? They sound the bass note, the fifth and then the octave. So in that they're going to play the silver one first and you will hear it. You'll hear the dough, the so and then the high do, that one octave um, above the original dough. Now, when you hear the high dough, it's going to be if you have perfect pitch, it's going to be just a little flat. Um, and then, um, and then next they play the bronze one. And the bronze one is, is so, it was so weak and tenuous and it did break during the performance um, that they could barely make most of the notes. And you hear actually the so do, and then you kind of hear a me. So it's not as clear. The commentator actually explains it all.
0: Now the two trumpets will be blown by bandsman James Tapper, who is here by permission of the colonel and officers of the 11th Prince Albert's own Hussars. I must explain that neither trumpet is easy to sound, and this is particularly true of the copper instrument. The silver one will be heard. The trumpets of the pharaoh Tutankhamun, lord of the crowns, king of the south and north, son of Rey. Now the copper trumpet. So, after a silence of over 3,000 years, these two voices out of Egypt's glorious past have gone echoing across the world.
3: really enjoyed that. I find it almost like coincidental. Um I don't know if you could tell that the two trumpets were actually like one diatonic step apart, which is exactly kind of what Verdi wrote for. He had the two sets of trumpets. Um, so if you remember the Triumphal March, it's an A, B, A section and then A, the B is actually like a diatonic step up and then comes back to the A section and like Coincidentally, this is like so eerie in my opinion. Those trumpets are also one diatonic step apart. So I don't know. (laughs) Believe what you will about sort of, you know, the weird, uh, the strange sort of um, aspects of the world. But um, yeah, so that's what I wanted to share with you all about sort of like, you know, what sounds can we hear? What sounds did he um, write for? And what, you know, could be and aren't sort of like the facts and the fictions, right? Of ancient sounds of Egypt.
1: Thank you so much, Tiffany. So, I think between the two of you, Karen and Tiffany, I think we have a lot more context for Aida now and a way to both understand what Verdi was thinking to achieve and how we might look at it now and understanding that. I I think both of you would say that what we see in Aida tells us a lot more about Verdi's world than it does about the world of ancient Egypt. So, thank you for that. I will ask a question. Tiffany, I was interested in the first slides you showed of. Um, women depicted being uh, uh, playing instruments, and so I want to ask both you and Kara: um, do, What do we know about women's education in the the period that Verdi was allegedly depicting, and in I guess I would just blankly a- ancient Egypt? Do those depictions tell us anything about how women were educated? It seems that um, women's
2: education in the New Kingdom you do see uh, evidence for elite women uh, learning to read and write. And there are images in tombs of women having scribal palettes underneath their, their seat in a tomb, in their, in their tomb depiction. So the reading and writing was possible and women did um, become leader of state. They were God's wives of Amun, which is a very important priestess position. And they often acted as queen regent on behalf of a young son who couldn't rule on his own. So in elite circles, yes, women could read and write. So that works, but note that for musicians, the women that are depicted in tombs are often depicted scantily clad, are often shown wearing garments that are kind of like a wet t-shirt contest, if you will, where you're, you're, you're um, impregnating the um, the fabric, the linen fabric with oil so that they stick to the body and they are meant to be um, expressions of sexuality. And we did see a little bit of that in the Austrian Verity production that you showed right at the end where you it, cut it, it off The the ladies were running out to go. <laughs> they were it, not dressed. It, in it, bikinis it, look like.
1: it looked like, you know.
2: <laughs> it did, it did. So this idea of, of taking the female and making her an object of, of sexual desire at a certain age, this is something the Egyptians did and they associated it with music and with dance. So th- those females, you could imagine, formed a a separate status group, a status group that really is perhaps outside of society, outside of respectable society in ancient Egypt. Those women and those musicians are are put into a different category from the elite woman.
1: And but they're still not so um, so ordinary, ordinary people, I'm guessing, and ordinary women would not have had a sufficient education to read or write or play play those kinds of instruments, at least.
2: Yeah. If your normal Egyptian population was 90 percent peasantry, there would have been little opportunity for those women who are busy baking bread, grinding grain, dealing with the children, washing clothes, mending clothes. They're not going to be playing many musical instruments. Those musicians are going to be a separate social category and probably a category that's akin to the craftsmen. So they're not peasants, but they're not elites either. And they're hanging out at a lot of elites parties and probably drinking some nice mead beer and things like that.
1: Oh, sounds good to me. Yeah.
2: Thank you.
3: I want to add that I don't know if you guys noticed the trumpeters were men yeah. in those depictions, right? And so like I do see, you know, and I would love to know your opinion on and your knowledge on this, Kara, is sort of like the difference between men and women musicians of the time.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. It was something I was thinking of, too. And don't we still stereotype like this ourselves? Mm-hmm. Trumpet players, when you think of a trumpet player, you think of that the, the, the guy with the Napoleon complex who wants to be the most important person in the band. What That's the stereotype, right? And it's usually a guy. Not that we can't break those stereotypes, but the Egyptians seem to follow exactly those same stereotypes. And the instruments that women play are harps or things that they can dance with, um, the sistrum, um, rattles, other things where, and it fall, it, you know, all of these things have a long duration of time and long developments. You can go to Egypt today and you can see belly dancers and you can see how they have little clappers that, and they dance with these oh. percussion instruments. And I wouldn't be surprised if in ancient Egypt, women had percussion instruments with them while they danced. And that that was meant to be a part of their sexual expression. And so the movement of the body is very much a part of the the playing of of certain instruments that are separate from those that, that men play. And then the final point, that stela that you showed of the man playing the harp, he was blind. And this idea of a blind harpist is a common one. You see depictions of the blind playing the harp and they don't need to be able to see. And maybe when children were born blind, male or female, because there's depictions of of blind female harpists, I believe, maybe the parents would say, okay, you're going to, you're going to do something that only the blind can do. And it's, it's something that, that you see depicted again and again, that they're almost favored by the gods to be able to do these things, play the harp Mm -hmm. in that way.
0: Oh, interesting. Thank you. What might you tell us, Cara and Tiffany, about, what we should look for as an audience member that'll help clue us in to what is happening on stage in terms of the context of of Egypt and in terms of the music. What might you tell us to look for or listen for to help us understand what we're seeing better?
3: I'll go first with the music. So Verdi actually had a fascination with ancient flutes, and he wanted to write something for an ancient flute that would have been integrated into Aida. But then when he went to the museum and saw the ancient flute, he was rather disappointed because ancient flutes, just like a natural uh, trumpet, would only sound so many notes. There were a couple scenes of just dancers and with a flute solo. So focus on that because he is trying to be, you know, quote, as authentic as possible in terms of like depicting what, a, like a Egyptian dance, not that we know exactly, you know, what the choreography is, but he's trying to incorporate his knowledge of Egypt with the music that could potentially be there. Now, you know, then you have to think in terms of 19th century harmonic language. And so like, be aware of these little scenes that are in there. I wouldn't say the voice, like, you know, I think Verdi's voice is purely 19th century bel Canto style, but everything else, you know, just kind of like, maybe re-listen to it from a different ear, if you can.
2: And then for the second part of your question about um, context and meaning, I think that what what I just looking at the Austrian production that that you showed, Tiffany, we're working with tropes of power and how we understand that. And it's so, it was so interesting to me just looking at that Austrian production that you have throwbacks to a national socialism and how one parses out the kind of march that one does, the kind of salute that one does, that it is meant to put the Egyptians in a rather national socialist lens. So everyone's dealing with power in their own way. I'm curious what the LA opera is going to do with this. How will they parse power? How do we deal with this? And I can imagine that the way this was done in Verdi's day, would have been more triumphal, more positivist, more straight ahead, less wounded, shall we say. The wounds of the of the 20th century have, have run deep and we will present this, this opera in a different way than, than it would have been done in Verdi's day before um, World War I and World War II really created a more nuanced, jaded view of this kind of power. So that's, that's where my interests are. I write about power all the time and whether the production gets the authenticity correct or not is immaterial. The way that we understand this power, whether we give it a side eye or we give it a firm embrace tells us more about ourselves than, than anything else. It's difficult to talk about the authenticity of an Egyptian triumph because they didn't have them the way that the Romans did. So when we think of a victorious march after battle, you really have in your mind the Roman triumph. So I think there's a conflation of those two things. And, you know, in Verity's day, it's like, oh, it's antiquity. It's fine. The Romans had triumphs. Everyone has triumphs after, after a great victory. And I'm not saying the Egyptians didn't, but these things are memorialized on big stela made of hard stones, where they talk about where they invaded and where they took live captives. Whether those captives were then paraded through an urban landscape or a palatial landscape, that's a little more tricky and we don't have any evidence for it. I wonder why. And then finally, I'll I'll say that this idea of enslaved people, is a really interesting one because the Egyptians in the new kingdom there, there was a higher influx of live captives from foreign campaigning, but Egypt is not built on slavery. It's part of our tropes, our understanding of how the Egyptians work. Those tropes are built on the Exodus story in the Bible. They're built on our own orientalizing ideas of how the Egyptians devalued humanity. But the Egyptians had more than enough of their own population to exploit, to build the Great Pyramids, to build temples. Slavery was not a mainstay of their economy. It's something that we've, we've really created and aggrandized in our own storytelling about Egypt. And again, it's why I want to put this opera into a New Kingdom context, because Egypt does get more live captives and enslaved people in the new kingdom certainly more than in the old kingdom or middle kingdom so from my perspective that's where
1: that's where i would put all of these tropes wow that, I've, I've learned so much i really look forward to seeing the production see you at the opera
0: la opera's aida is playing from may 21st to june 12th at the dorothy chandler pavilion get your tickets now at laopera.org you've been listening to la operas behind the curtain If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.